our retreats, our practice together. I've been very much appreciating hearing about how it's been going for for you in the various groups and uh, recognizing how much work has been happening here on a very uh, authentic and profound level. It's uh, um, working with the teachings and recognizing places of opening and insight and also learning to withstand and inquire into the, the areas of challenge, what we find difficult to be with. And so it's been uh, feeling like uh, being able to partake through hearing about your practice and how it's going of some of the, the fruits of this process of just a few days of applying ourselves and using the Dharma uh, to support our lives and our inquiry. We have a feeling maybe through this uh, retreat and through for many of you many years of practice now that this is a path of transformation. It's not a path of just try and push away the difficult things and uh, try and escape into some um, pink rose-tinted cloud that we imagine to be nibbana or peace. I, I know that's how when I first started my practice, that's how I I thought about it. I had some really naive ideas about what this whole path would be like. I I I don't know um, quite where I I got them from, but um, <laughs> but uh, I had uh, when I when I, uh, I tried for many years. I worked very hard, did many many retreats, any sort of concentration type retreats, and. Uh, you know, got some facility for um, for concentration and focus and gatheredness, and it's very a lot of effort. Did uh, months, and months, years, but then every time I'd go out into the everyday world, I just uh, I'd fall apart. I'd be just someone would look at me a bit oddly, and I'd sort of go into a tailspin, and found it very difficult. Found the vibration of the world very very coarse and would get confused and then all my patternings or my crazy mind would take over and I just suffer really and I didn't really have a feeling I think until I met Ajahn Chah and came across uh, this style of reflective contemplative way that didn't really have a feeling as as he, uh, as I mentioned the other night his teaching of not only using retreats like a good lawyer to spring you out of difficulty but to also find out what gets you into difficulty in the first place and learn to to make the the um the practice as he would use a phrase which meant more even more continual more able to integrate into all aspects of experience and to use every experience as part of our transformation and to recognize that even that which is difficult the so-called hindrances actually at first, we feel them to be a hindrance to us. They're a drag. We don't want them here. We don't want to be spun out. We don't want to feel um, pain. And we don't want to feel confusion. We don't want to feel lost and sadness. And uh, and yet, it's actually the willingness to begin to engage this sort of manure of our lives that begins to become the fertilizer for our garden of awakening. So I don't know where that came from, but anyway. (laughs) Lots of manure. (laughs) Yeah, it's good stuff, apparently. So this, this is, we remember that the, when we um, studied the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, and the Buddha said, this is a path, this is a way for the um, purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, lamentation, and despair, for the establishment of a direct way, and for the, the tasting or the realization of Nibbana. We don't, uh, you know, necessarily, we may have taste of peace, but we don't really mature into that unless it's through this purification, this transformation, this opening into the field of, of life. 
and realizing that everything is an opportunity for this transformation and purification and cultivation. And what appears first, like in the first hindrance, as as you know, first it's uh, the, this energy of um, desire, or in the second noble truth also talks about this energy of thirsting, craving, desire, sensory desire, desire to to become something, someone, all the time seeking. That this at first is a is an energy when it's not illuminated by awareness, not investigated, it just ever drives us onward. We just become shaped by that energy. You know, everything, we become what we desire in some ways, it, and, and it never finishes, it just keeps going, keeps pointing to the next thing, the next situation, the next place. We're already in one retreat, and we might be planning for the next one. You know, Or we, we think about when we're in our everyday life, I really want to go on retreat, and then we arrive on retreat, and then we think, I don't really want to be here anymore. So <laughs> there is, uh, we wonder, we sit here in the meditation hall, and we say, oh, yeah, actually, I want to go have a cup of tea, and we go have a cup of tea, and we say, no, I want to go back and sit, and no, I want to go out and walk, and we go out and walk, and no, I want to go and sit, no, I want to go lay down. And, you know, often we don't really question what's moving us, because we're just so compelled by that energy, so... One of the advantages of, of slowing down and stopping as we've been doing is that we get confronted by that, that desire, restlessness, energy and we have an opportunity to not move with it but to contemplate it. So at first it appears as agitation, as unfulfilled, as thirsting, as, as always um, like a as uh, Ajahn Chah says, like we're like a, a dog running around trying to alleviate a, an itch on its body, runs here, runs there, runs everywhere. Then, then realize eventually that the, the 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 dog has mange. It's actually on the body, so you run around try to alleviate that itch, and you realize, oh, it's actually here. It's not. I'm not going to alleviate it by running over there. I have to deal with the sickness here. So as we start to contemplate that energy, we start to, even in what appears to be a hindrance, actually has within it a very positive force. So it's not just a, a negative, saying this is a bad energy. It's not a judgment value, but it's learning to decant within that energy, uh, 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 the, the essence of the energy, and then have that be able to be transformed and in service of a more wise way of being. So in this desire, as it starts to purify and become illuminated, it, we start to be able to to see or decant that into a quality that's called chanda, which also means desire, but it's a different kind of desire. It's a sort of energy of enthusiasm or the energy that we have or need to fulfill any undertaking, like a path of practice, can, can, uh, has a sense of wise passion guided by wise intention, by reflection. And so that is something that then we can, is in service of, of our, of our um, in our human life, rather than something that's just unconscious and driving us ever onward, and in service of wise intention, considered action, careful um, contemplation of how to, to be, how to use that energy in the world, you know, for the welfare and the cultivation of well-being in, in, in the community, in, in, in our lives. Or conversely, the energy of aversion. Sometimes it, the desire flips to the opposite, which is Wipuwatan has called this desire that when we when we when we don't really desire to be here anymore, it's like we've had enough. It's you know, we've had enough experiences. We we don't want to experience anything. We feel you know too jaded, or we just want to shut down and. Or we just feel very averse. You know, just feel averse to people, to contact, to, to everything. 
Well, you know, so, you know, at first this, this energy, when it's not illuminated, can be quite difficult to, to be with. You know, it's a, it's a closing down and negativity and that it's more extreme, it's a hatred and can fuel very, you know, very unskillful actions or, at the, uh, or can project onto the self, which is more what tends to happen, become depression or heaviness or self-judgment. It, it, practicing this mindfulness to know this is just a version rather than I'm really irritated. This is very, just a version. Then we can begin to feel in that energy what is there that maybe is being communicated in that, in this uh, desire to, to be averse to that which is painful or harmful or difficult and then realizing that actually within that there's a wholesome, there's something wholesome it doesn't appear at first as wholesome, but it's uh, the impulse to remove ourselves from, from pain. But we just go about it the wrong way. We go about it through our addictions or through our distractions or through just mindlessly dwelling in, in fantasies. But the impulse is not bad. It just gets distorted. The energy is, is, gets constricted. So we can actually distill that and say, actually, there's a very healthy impulse here within this energy to, to work, my, work a way out of pain and suffering. And so all of these hindrances have something to, to mature in. They mature us at first what we don't want to be with and what we think is not part of our meditation because our meditation is just about being peaceful um, and we start to realize actually this is exactly what our meditation is about. And for many of us through this week together, we've had, you know, a lot of it has been learning to just be with the momentum of what's gone before and change the relationship to that from just getting overwhelmed and shaped by what is difficult to learning to withstand at first and then maybe create some space and then maybe contemplate and investigate while developing this steadiness. And then in the process we might begin to realize it's not just about the the state that's difficult but realizing the qualities that have been cultivated in response to what is difficult and we don't we forget to recognize that the capacity for more patience, the capacity, you know, when we get touched, or as Ajahn Chah would say, this practice is preparation for when the real passions hit or something hits us that's very difficult to be with and we fly off the handle. And in that moment, you know, if we don't have much mindfulness, we can actually act out in a way that can have very unfortunate consequences. There's plenty of people that get into serious trouble that if they had a bit more mindfulness in one moment might have been able to withstand a passion of anger or violence or um, some difficult self-harming impulse. Just one moment to withstand that and then begin to work through it in a, in a more skillful way, would have saved a lot of unnecessary suffering. So it doesn't look like much to be here with, you know, just bit by bit with the challenges that we face during the retreat, but it's this gathering, cultivating, strengthening the patience it needs to withstand a crazy, restless mind that just will not shut up. Or, you know, the willingness to, to, you know, the quality of investigation, willingness to, to inquire and not just heedlessly suffer, just sort of tough it out, but actually turn the mind to inquiry and then noticing that sometimes that really helps open up and dissolve what was so intractable to us. So it's important to recognize that it's not just about our experience, but what's being developed in response to the experience strength, capacity, agility, ability to withstand, ability, inquiry, wisdom, insight. 
And then this larger context of noticing the underlying peace and presence, that it's not just all about what is happening, but there's a larger context. And it's that, you know, moments, it can be moments in when we start to open in this path of awakening, you know, it's not just going to be, as I said the other night of uh, Carl Jung, it's not just going to be imagining figurines of light, but it's going to be illuminating that which is held in the shadows. And so it's not an easy journey. And there'll be moments when something will trigger us and where we might have really defaulted into a whirl, you know, gone down a vortex of reactivity and pain and complexity when we actually realize that something else is happening, the mindfulness, the awareness has gained enough strength to transform that momentum. In my own life, I've had a, a lot of tendency to this 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 quality I call in, in Buddhism Wipawadanha, which is a very it's the it's the opposite the shadow of desire, plenty of desire, but the 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 desire not to really be here. And it kind of can can um, be a very profound resistance. I don't feel it so much. The you know it's really lifted a lot through the practice. It'd be you know, just very resistance to being in form, in body, life. Um, and then it would sometimes be connected with very sabotaging and isolating voices, inner voices. It was like feeling of not really having a sense of um, right to belong here. And something, sometimes things could, could trigger that and take me into a very difficult space, a very sort of unconstructed, um, groundless space. Not groundless in the, an awakening sense, <laughs> but groundless in a sort of inner shattering sense, not really having a sense of one's ground. And, and from that, all sorts of kind of resonances of despair and... and, and um, it just gets very, very crazy. And then realizing over over time with practice that there have been moments when that pattern has been triggered and there's been a little bit more capacity to withstand that and not go the whole pattern. This, um, to read um, a little bit about this from our book, Listening to the Hearts, this particular moment when I began to feel the tide changing. It's just one Sankara, one patterning. There's many of them, many different shapes that we, we work with or can experience. So this, this is from the chapter called The Nectar in the Fire. It begins with a quote from Rumi. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Meditation and therapeutic work by making the unconscious conscious reveal our deeper wounds and enable healing A small trigger can be all that's needed to dive into painful sankhara, our primary patterning. In my own healing, a small event triggered a process that began to turn the tide. It was a silly incident, a disagreement between Kirisara and myself about how much to tip a waiter at a restaurant. (laughs) So it's always very humbling, this path. We were at at a beach resort taking a break from a difficult dynamic in our work in South Africa. I was already under a lot of stress and susceptible to reactivity. This small incident and the overall stress we were under catalyzed my deeper issues around security, placement and belonging, which in turn activated a familiar whirlpool of confusing feelings, triggering my default defense of disassociation. 
That's why I've been very good at meditation. I'm quite good at disassociating. (laughs) One of our most primitive defense mechanisms is to freeze. When we feel under threat, our instinctive reactions are to fight, flee, or freeze. These reactions pull us out of a parasympathetic nervous system which regulates deeper rhythms of calm, digestion, rest, and relaxation. The sympathetic nervous system, on the other hand, activates in response to threat. When it does, we are pulled into survival mode. For many in our stressed world, it's becoming harder to drop out of the sympathetic activation back into parasympathetic so it can regulate our system. When whole societies are threatened or feel threatened, as for example in the ongoing red alerts in the height of the terrorist narrative in the USA and elsewhere, we are pulled into heightened sympathetic response, which means we are in the least optimal mode for wise response. If we are reacting to an immediate life threat, instinctual response can be good. However, we don't always want to be in that mode as it can lead to overreaction creating more problems. Also, over time, our system will become depleted and stressed if we are always on high alert. When we move into freeze mode, it's hard to think coherently. Basically, our system is in shock, so we begin to disconnect from our experience. Over the years, I've experienced this mechanism as a chemical reaction that affects the brain. This response, common for many people, aims to protect us by shutting down our system. It's a survival strategy. When conflict can't be managed or emotional reactions threaten the fragile cohesion of the self, the natural intelligence of the system is to disassociate. This takes us out of the body and scrambles the brain. Clarity of thought diminishes and the capacity to to respond coherently or effectively shuts down. But as we become more adept at mindfulness, we can slow reactivity and turn it around to appropriate response. However, the process of psychospiritual transformation is just that. It's a process. We don't always catch ourselves before spiraling into activity, reactivity. Once activated, layers of painful feelings and discordant voices slice away at any sense of congruence, trust and well-being. That evening at the beach resort, I knew I was in irrational territory. I was touching into the deeper matrix of the self-structure, which forms basic patterns of survival at a very young age, when we develop primitive reactions to pleasure and pain. That night, my primary defences were triggered. However, I was at a place in my practice where I had enough mindfulness to track the process as I entered one of our deepest wounds, the belief that no one is there for us. The feeling is like a howl of a lonely wolf as it falls through thin ice into freezing and unforgiving water. Actually, it was nighttime by the Indian Ocean. It was warm and balmy, and I was with someone that I loved and cherished, And certainly everything was okay. However, as I started to be consumed by this vortex of old conditioning, I felt the freeze of increasing isolation, as if moving into colder and colder water. Looking out into the pitch-dark ocean, I felt a strong pull to walk into it. And even though I knew it was shark-infested, I couldn't resist the pull. At the depth of this wound was the movement toward complete annihilation. But as I understand it, this innate innate intention towards death, a wish for suicide, didn't surface until I had enough mindfulness to feel its utter desolation. A desolation that offers no redemption, no mercy, nothing can get through. It is anger turned to ice. It is utter aloneness and icy blackness which consumes all last vestiges of warmth, hope, light, self-love and well-being. My my training in mindful awareness enabled me to hold steady at the edge of this great void into which poured all the wounds we had encountered in South Africa. The impossibility of poverty, the complexity of racism, the overwhelming consequences of AIDS, 
the most devastating betrayals of trust. It was as if a trapdoor opened, letting all the orphans tumble in, the wounded, the marginalized, the lonely, and the abandoned. The Hungarian poet Janusz Polenski, who witnessed the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps, wrote a haunting poem. It talks about the vulnerable self-child hoping for love but abandoned to death. This is our own self-child, but also the hopeful self-child of all beings who must inevitably meet the agony of samsara. Once upon a time there was a lonely wolf, lonelier than the angels. He happened to come across a village where he fell in love with the first house he saw. Already he loved its walls, the caress of its brick layers, but the windows stopped him. In the room sat people. Apart from God, nobody ever found them so beautiful as this childlike beast. So at night he went into the house. He stopped in the middle of the room and never moved from there any more. He stood all through the night with wide eyes and on into the morning when he was beaten to death. There are good reasons to disassociate from the harshness of life. We hope our spirituality or New Age idealism can wrap us in a cotton wool and protect us. But alas, awakening demands a truthful passage through life. Fortunately, it's a journey we can only take with the support and love of others. My ability to stay with the process that night by the Indian Ocean was made possible by the loving presence of my dearest husband and partner, Kitty Saro, as, we sat, as he sat beside me holding my hand. The loving presence of another, particularly when there is no judgment, can be vital in our ability to negotiate these dark and difficult territories. Perhaps this is the deepest meaning of Sangha or spiritual friendship, not only to inspire one another, but to be there for one another in moments of utter desolation and to shine a light. When our wounds are received with loving kindness, the possibility of redemption and healing can begin to emerge. That night, by the ocean, when Kitty Sara came to hold my hand, as we just sat quietly together, that simple touch helped me track back from the edge of obliteration. It is here that we understand the value of what we can truly offer one another as humans. The holding of a hand at times of pain and loss is worth more than a conquering army. As we reclaim the split-off parts of ourselves, individually and collectively, we begin the journey of transforming our deepest pains into compassion and mercy. So just in case you thought I was, uh, my past been a breeze. <laughs> this this um, moment of being able to, you know, um, Feel sometimes it's called in a therapeutic practice. It's called feeling the or being with the um, unbearable wound to being. It's a wound that we all suffer in some way or another as we incarnate and take birth and come into separation, even with the best circumstances around us, best parenting, loving circumstances. There's still some level there's a certain wound that happens that is can be unbearable to us as very, very young beings. And we, we, we tend to just uh, push that away. We have very profound defenses against that wound. It's because it's intolerable to feel, but it can resonate in, and sort of generate on a more conscious level some of the, the patterns that we feel or the feeling tones that we have of anxiety or or, or depressions, or overwhelms, or feeling self-sabotaging. So as we practice little by little, sometimes these, these deeper underneath the presenting state, sometimes there's a sort of unpackaging, and what can appear are some of these more difficult places. And we have an opportunity then, it's why these, these practices that we're doing, we have an opportunity for something else to come forward. This power of moments of presence, just holding there 
we used to train when I trained as a as a therapist. We used to train with something we called the empty hand, which is not. It's just like being able, if you're working with someone, just to either metaphorically or if you're working with them and you touch them, to do so with an empty hand, not trying to fix, not trying to generate or project anything, but just to touch. And through that, just bringing awareness at the place of touch and allowing awareness itself to do the work. Because this awareness is connected with intelligence, with wisdom, with compassion. So this mindfulness is another way of talking about it is we could say we're bringing that empty hand into relationship to all these patternings that we've been with through this week. Some of them appearing at at the surface of our consciousness, some of them connected with sort of unfathomable and, and not such easy territories. And as that capacity to do that is strengthens, and in the moments when it really matters or even moments in the ordinariness of life, there can be some other kind of relationship this, this that comes through from the, this awareness isn't just, is, is, is also not just, uh, is not just um, unmoving, profound peace, but it's also, it's also responsive, this heart. This mind is responsive. So the Buddha recommended us to to actively um, cultivate qualities of response, ways of being in relationship that transmute the reactivity of the mind and the tendency to be spun out by some of these states into more skillful, compassionate, merciful ways of holding our experience within life, the experience of ourselves and the experience of others, experience of the world, so that there's this there's this fluidity, as Kisara was saying this morning, between the the wing of wisdom, the letting go, and the wing of compassion to be able to gently hold, not grasp so tightly. Letting go doesn't mean we just reject, but it means that we move into a more skillful loving, wise holding of life. This teaching that the Buddha taught to help us do this was mentioned this morning through the cultivation of these four great Brahma Viharas, these four streams of energy that are innate to the heart but that can be consciously cultivated. These moments as we've been contemplating today of, of metta or loving kindness or non-aversion, even if we feel averse, to be able to meet that aversion with, with, uh, with loving kindness so we can really hold that state and hear into it and listen into it and maybe distill from it what is it actually saying, what's important to hear here. So at the, at the, at the subtlest level it's learning, say this, Meta practice is learning not to dwell. We all feel sometimes aversion, hatred, resentment. People have done things, can feel very resentful of what's happened in the relational field, hurt, wounded. To, it's not to pretend that we don't feel those things because we're spiritual people, but to fully acknowledge those kinds of feelings, but learning and to work with them, bring them into the light, into the light of awareness touching the compassion, but also not learning not to dwell and make much of hatred. <laughs> it's hard, quite hard for human beings to do this. It's a lot of energy that we can generate this separative, hate, hateful consciousness. And there might be very, very good reason, but it's a particular kind of practice to recognize when that's arising, but just not to make much of it. Yes, there's aversion. Yes, there's, there's, there's resentment. Taking the breath there, holding that with, with care, even that. And this is also a being of loving kindness. And then learning to extend that out so that as we do that with the beings of our own self-nature, all the different voices, all the different kinds of moods, then it's easier to do that uh, for others as well, to extend that out. 
So as the Buddha taught this, he said that to develop this quality of loving kindness and friendliness in a more equal way. So we can, towards ourselves, friends, enemies, people we don't know very well, so it can be a so it's a very lovely way of, of being in, in life. And then it acts, it has benefits to it. So one that's well-developed in this practice becomes dear, dear to humans. Animals and non-humans becomes protected from more extreme forms of danger. Is quick to concentrate have samadhi, so not, you're not always caught in aversion, pushing away things, you're accepting, allowing. And other, other such wholesome benefits that emerge from this practice. And then very close to that, but it's a little bit different, this second Brahma Vihara is around the cultivation of compassion, which is such a, an important energy in our world. Without compassion, it's a very brutal um, um, world just sort of go out there and kind of trample over people for what we want to get which is a lot of energies like that just get get what we can but without any resonance or consideration of uh, empathy for those around us so again it begins this working or cultivation of compassion begins with the willingness whereas loving kindness is the willingness to extend friendliness, to practice not dwelling in aversion. This compassion is the willingness to feel with suffering rather than judge it so much. Judging others so much is actually being willing to attune our ability to feel with, and particularly feeling with this this, 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 uh, energy of suffering in ourselves and in, in others. So that's the, the root of compassion. And then not only to stop there, but to consider wisely how to alleviate suffering. It isn't actually necessarily enough just to, to, um, to you know, it's wonderful to think wonderful thoughts, may all beings be free from suffering. <laughs> but if we look at the Buddha's life, he actually went out and, and try to do something about that. He, he actually acted out of compassion. His whole movement into teaching was from compassion, but he went to situations. He didn't avoid difficult situations. He, he went in to try and stop wars, try and speak, talk people down from acts of violence. There's an incident when there was a, a, a war between two tribes just about to happen over water rights. And he went to sort of like say, you're going to kill each other over this. You know, there are other ways, pointing out other ways. He, he, he advised kings and those uh, people with power, more skillful ways, more just ways of using that power. He went out and um, tracked down a serial killer, killed 99 people and turned him around and actually made him a disciple and um, saw his potential. He taught outcasts, you know, tended to the sick, encouraged his disciples. There's an incident where one of the disciples was very sick and no one wanted to tend to them. And he said, well, you know, you, tending to this person is, tending, is the same as tending to me. Uh, he went out and uh, ordained women and slaves and brought them up to the same level in that act as the priestly caste, which he was hated for. And he would take on the the powers that be, endless debates with the you know, those that thought that the being a Brahmin was because of your birth. And he was saying, no, it's nothing to do with your birth, it's to do with your behavior and your intention and your mind. You know, so this was someone that wasn't just sort of sitting thinking, may all beings be well, but he was actually going out to try and help all beings be well. Encouraging people through famines, and you know, at one one point he tried to stop a war that uh, he couldn't stop. It was uh, his own people were were slaughtered actually, and he went to the to the the opposing army and the king and tried to to stop them three times. 
and 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 he wasn't successful. The karma was just so great, the momentum was so great that there was a an unfortunate, devastating slaughter of his own people. But the thing that's that's important is that he tried. You know, one tries. You don't always succeed. You don't always succeed at acts of compassionate engagement. But there's the willingness to try. So this is a model for us that the Buddha Dharma isn't just a one-fold path, just sit. It's also right action, right engagement, putting, using this chanda, this desire, this energy, this appropriate boundaries, wisdom, putting it into practice. This is through the activity of um, compassion informed by wisdom, inquiry. And then in balance to that, this third um, great Brahma Vihara is uh, the very important quality of um, honing to sometimes called mudita, sympathetic joy. It's being able to not only resonate with suffering and heaviness and difficulty and struggle. That's not all of life, as is mentioned um, and talked about during a retreat. There's also uh, beauty and humor and goodness, and joy, and creativity, and being able to also hone our attention to that, so that we also notice you know, the beauty of the light, the beauty of the landscape, the beauty of the colors, the beauty of nature, the beauty in other beings, the beauty in ourselves, the goodness around us, that actually, even though there's a lot of heavy stuff going down there's an uh, there is much more goodness happening every day just small interactions small ways people helping themselves and each other and most important the goodness in ourselves never never giving up on our own goodness like the reading the other night when i was telling you about our friend that was attacked and then held the man's hand and saying, you're a good man, reminding him you're not, this isn't who you really are. There's goodness here. And to not give up on this world, it's very easy. I feel like it's all going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. It's like, you know, we don't stand a chance, you know, you just sort of check out or, you know, grab, grab a little bit while you can or... Go, go off and live in Costa Rica. It's actually quite an attractive proposition. <laughs> Do some yoga treats, some fasts, you know. And you know, it's such a lot more fun than being uh, in a Vipassana retreat. <laughs> uh, so it's it's, uh, it's it's tempting to do that, you know. But. Um <laughs> But uh, to but to be to be willing, even in a world that's on fire, you know, it's uh, to, to not give up on the world yet. You know, it's not over yet. So we should, we can, we can still hone and promote the wholesome. There's this beautiful. I, I love. I don't know if you watched Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Highly recommend it, Keith. I've watched it dozens of times. <laughs> we can memorize it. We can recite it off by heart. <laughs> and I really relate to the Hobbit land. I was with someone that came from a Hobbit land, sort of in this sort of slightly overwhelming world. It's very. When I first came to America, I actually literally. I mean, I've been coming to America quite a lot now for many years, but I felt dizzy because it's so big. I was like, everything's big here, you know. It's like the supermarkets. You go, you go and get a box of something, and you spend about an hour later going, which one? You know, it's like, you know, like just walking down the aisle takes you an hour, you know. So like, like oh my god, you know, it's like, it's like it's just huge. I sort of st- anyway, from someone from Hobbit Land, everything's a manageable size. So, so you know, as you know in the story, they're taking the, the ring back to Mordor to sort of to go back to the source, source of, of evil to destroy evil. You know, so it's this huge journey that these little hobbits have to undertake you know, against all odds, with orcs coming after them and sort of like, you know, it's just like an f- absolutely terror, terrifying Terrifying journey, but it's a very, very good metaphor for our times. 
It's this, it's this human heart, it's this human heart that can win out, actually. Yeah, it's not the powers of technology and the powers of the orcs and the powers and forces of destruction. They all seem so huge. As you see now, like in the tar sands, you see these machines that, that dig up the earth. I mean, the wheel, one wheel of some of these machines is as big as this room almost. I mean, it's just not human size anymore. Yes, this is a sort of a, a world taken over by technology and machinery that completely divorces us from, rips us out from this this connection with belonging to the earth as soul, being in our soul and in our heart. But it is this human heart that is actually has this these capacities for wisdom and quantum leaps of shifts of understanding. It's not the machines. But one's up against that machine mentality. It would just sort of treat everything as an object and rip it apart for the sake of endless profiteering. So in the face of that, Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. You know, it's that's what the human heart feels. I can't do this. It's too difficult. How many times have you felt that in the retreat? I feel it every retreat. I mean, I tell you, I've done a lot of retreats. <laughs> Even as sitting here, it's like, I'm out of here. It's like, oh, I can't move out of here so easily because I'm supposed to be teaching the thing. <laughs> so it's not so, but that I can't do this, Sam. I can't do this. It's too difficult. And then Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know what to do in the end. And you didn't want to know what the end was. Because how could anyone be happy? How could it end happily? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? It's very much what we can feel. But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even the darkness must pass a new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out, shine out all the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. They meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going, because they were holding on to something, Frodo. And so Frodo says... What were they holding on to, Sam? (laughs) And Sam says, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. That there's some good. And so in this this Brahmavahara of joy, of mudita, you know, there's joy, there's beauty, there's goodness, and it's worth holding on to for ourselves, for our children, for those to come. It's worth holding out for that. It's worth seeing that every day. It's worth attuning to that so we can maintain. One of the beautiful things about Buddhism is it doesn't tend to produce martyrs. Yeah. You know, the Buddha was Sugato. He, he did all this, but he maintained well-being. You know, he maintained integ- inner integrity. He wasn't, you know, it was like holding your own power, meeting the forces of destruction, meeting the difficult states of mind, maintaining well-being, not being crushed. There is goodness here. There is ground here from which to meet that which the forces of Mara, that which would undermine. And then this last uh, great um, Brahma-vihara that balances all of them is Upeka, this beautiful quality of developing an equal heart equanimity, serenity, a heart that can, like this Ajahn Chah, to make your practice more even, to be with, yes, it's very difficult now, that's part of the practice, yes, fourth jhana, (laughs) that's part of the practice, great peace, that's wonderful, great humor and camaraderie, that's beautiful, great distress, that's part of the practice, the full bank account, Brilliant. Bank account empties. Okay, that's part of the practice. So whatever whatever circumstance, the worldly winds are beyond our control. It's praise and blame, gain and loss, criticism, 
and, and um, being elevated, happiness, unhappiness, these often are forces beyond our control. But what we can control and have some agency is how we meet that. To contemplate in this equanimity, it's said that the contemplation that supports this is the contemplation of karma, that for whatever reason, whatever conditions, this is how it's come to be now in this moment. So rather than beating ourselves up or wailing and lamentation, how could it be like this, how could it be like this, it shouldn't be like this, it's just this is how things have come to be and let's work with it as skillfully as well as we can, maintaining well-being and keeping our equanimity, our balance. So as these qualities of, uh, the Buddha said, as this, these skillful qualities of the heart that, that, that actually are cultivated in the ground of everyday life, in the ground of our practice, in the ground of the mind, of our hindrances, as we transform them and work them and as they arise for the opportunity to be met with moments of kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity. The Buddha said that this is like developing a large container. So he said it's like if something difficult happens and it's bitter, some karma arises, some effect arises from the past. And it's very difficult. If you're not well developed in the heart, well developed in awareness of the body, you haven't developed expansive states of mind and heart, he said then that bitterness is like a salt crystal in a small glass of water. You can't drink it. You can't digest it. It will be poisonous for you. But for one who is well developed in these qualities of mindfulness, well developed in awareness of the body, well developed in the qualities of the heart, expansive, some inquiry, all of the the skillful qualities that are inherent to the heart and that are cultivating, we're cultivating consciously, so as that grows and develops, that same result of unwholesome, action that arises or same effect from causes and conditions that come to be that are bitter and difficult to digest. He said it's like a salt crystal in the Ganges. The experience of bitterness arises for the moment of suffering but it dissolves very quickly. You have the power to begin to dissolve some of the residue of what is actually suffering or difficult to digest, whether it's your own salt crystals or the crystals, salt crystals, salt of the world. Like Mr. Mandela, you know, through 27 years of his incarceration, wrongful incarceration in South Africa, you know, he could have landed up a very bitter person and yet he developed a consciousness that when he was released in 1994, he carried a whole country that was on the verge, you had a low-grade war going on anyway, but it was on the verge of a complete meltdown. You know, that that kind of a leader with such bitterness, such atrocities, such legislated madness that had carried for so many years that he had the kind of consciousness that could carry a whole nation and gave a tone a tone to everyone that he was incredibly loved because of it. And that love was able to heal so much and offer a radiant path forward. One person who transmuted the bitterness of a whole country into an adamantine heart one of the first times um, we saw him was in, in London. We'd gone to get our visas. We'd been invited to teach there. And we'd gone to South Africa House in London to get our, all the things we needed to get for entry into the country so we could live and work there. And South Africa House is, Trafalgar Square, is this very heavy, grey, oppressive colonial building. But that day, Mr. Mandela had arrived in London just after he'd been freed from prison and the new 
South African flags were unfurled down along the building, massive, just fluttering in the wind. And then the the bells of St. Martin of the Fields were pealing in the background and the pigeons were flying and there were thousands of people screaming to see Mr. Mandela. Just screaming like a like a rock star or a saint, you know, like people holding their babies up and you know, and then he eventually came out on the balcony, he's got a very majestic or he had a very majestic um carriage the way he held himself and he just stood there and he just said I love you all I'm going to take you all back to South Africa in my pockets <laughs> and everyone's going yeah you know, there's this tremendous capacity to hold and, and inspire wherever he went yeah, so this is what's possible for us. This was a human heart. It's not a. These the divine qualities. These Brahma, they're divine, but they're manifesting through this humanity. And there's, he didn't start off. I'm sure he didn't start off like that. I'm sure he went through despair and anger and rage and revenge and you know. But he chose not to actually default to those very understandable reactions, but to keep going, keep going keep learning, learning about his enemies. He used to order books in Afrikaans so he could read them all, learn the language, the poetry, the literature. It was a hated language because they tried to be imposed on, 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 uh, on the whole, all the Africans, all their country. And crazy, I don't know what they were thinking. But he 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 kind of he he did uh, made these gestures to dissolve bitterness. So as one person like that has got like ten Ganges rivers, you know, going, they just throw the bitterness and it dissolves. Throw the bitterness, it dissolves. Throw the bitterness, it dissolves. So in our own small way, as Ajahn Chah said, don't pretend you've got a ten-wheeler truck when you've got a wheelbarrow. I mean, we're not, we're not quite Mr. Mandela, but in our own small ways, this is possible for us. The Buddha taught this way as that which is possible and doable for us. That this, because this is our nature. You know, this is our human hearts, liberated from false assumptions, from obstructions, transforming and using all the conditions of our life to grow that flower flowering of awakening of wisdom and compassion This day has been a good day, beautiful day, a lot of fruits from our practice. May we share those fruits for the welfare of all beings in all situations. May there be light and peace, love and compassion, mercy and forgiveness. May this heart, human heart, shine through in all circumstances offering hope, healing, redemption and a good path forward for ourselves and for others.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.